Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. Welcome, Luminous Writers, to the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. I am your host, author and literary magazine editor, Rachel Thompson. This podcast explores how to write and share your brilliant writing with the world. In each episode, we delve into specifics on how to polish and prepare your writing for publication and the journey from emerging writer to published author. Hello, Luminous Writers, and welcome to the second in my series of special episodes of Write, Publish, and Shine, as I take you on a deep dive into the creation of Room Magazine, issue 46.3. This is the issue where I was most recently lead editor of Room's issue 46.3. The theme was Ghosts, and you can find it available now at roommagazine.com. And for more context on this series of episodes, I encourage you to go back just to the episode right prior to this one, episode number 80, as I'm going to bring you right into the second episode now featuring contributors to the Ghosts issue of Room. So we had two contributors before and we have two more today. What does it take to haunt your reader? In this case, myself, I'm the reader and my assistant editor, Ellen Chang Richardson, for this issue. We're both responsible for choosing the pieces that landed in our issue. One thing that truly resonates and haunts us as readers is when writers express the deeply personal in their writing, especially in the genres of creative nonfiction and poetry, but the same can be said in the truths that fiction reveal as well. So I felt brought into what I don't think is overstating it, a sacred trust from the two writers that you're going to hear from today, who both share very personal human vulnerabilities in their work. So let's get up close and personal with them. First, I spoke with brilliant writer Razel Grace, who sent us the creative nonfiction story, The Rosary of Thanatos, a story that recounts the journey the writer took both literally and metaphorically. I loved so much of this work, and in particular, there's a line which I even quoted in my editor's letter, I am the ghost and the paper is only a specter, which felt like words that could apply To all of us who produced this issue, I'm going to be talking more about what the theme means in upcoming episodes as well. Rachel Grace is a poet, essayist, translator, and librarian whose multilingual work reflects her experiences growing up in what was once the Russian Empire and growing into herself as a transgender Ashkenazi woman. She is an editor for Sultry and Liar and Cordella magazine, and both her editorial and writing experiences contributed to her very helpful and at times incredibly touching responses to my questions in our conversation. So yeah, you're going to hear me move to tears in real time during our chat. For warning, here's Razel who rose early in the morning to speak with me. 
So I want to just thank you so much for being here, Razel Grace, to share with our listeners of the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast about your experience in publishing in our room ghosts issue and talk a bit about your writing practice. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So excited to be with you this morning. Yeah, and I appreciate normally people don't really necessarily know what time of day that we're doing this. So I appreciate that you have moved in the early hours of your morning to be somewhere quiet where we can have this conversation. So thank you for that. So I wanted to just dive right into your piece, The Rosary of Thanatos, because it describes a quest and it takes us, the reader, on a quest to visit the grave of Delmira Augustini. And I want to talk more about Delmira Augustini, but I wanted to start by asking if you would read the opening paragraph that kind of sets us on that journey in your piece. Yeah, absolutely. I probably look like a wraith when I apparate in the office of the cemetery caretaker at nine sharp after an all-night ferry and bus from Buenos Aires and two hours circumambulating the walls in an almost psychotropic pre-dawn light, explaining in a Spanish that reveals how much more I read than speak that I've traveled 6,000 miles and I have to see her. I am a chronically depressed 26-year-old desperately in need of a role model, and Delmira Agostini is everything I have ever wanted to be, supremely gifted as a poet, beautiful and elegantly dressed, dead at 28. I will eventually learn that all of these desires are fairly common in people struggling with gender dysphoria, but I'll be older than 28 when that happens. There's so much in that opening, I think is why I wanted you to read that, because it sets us up that we're going on a journey but it tells us what's really at stake for the writer in this creative nonfiction piece. And it also kind of puts the idea of peril for the writer in question, but then it sort of like answers that right away too. It's like, no, no, it's not about this. It's about that. So I'm wondering how you chose where to start this piece, because it feels like such a deliberate and thoughtful choice. I'm not sure that I know. It kind of came to me just after fiddling. I mean, the way that you do, right? Like most of my essays and short stories, I've started in six different places before, <laughs> before in a rewrite, like I hit the one that really catches. And I think that one was born. And you can tell me if I'm getting ahead of things here, but like I'd wanted to write something about this for a long time. I think in part because when readers read the essay, they'll understand why I say this. Like I felt like I needed to make some kind of confession. <laughs> Like, I felt really conflicted about this experience. It was intensely meaningful for me, but also afterward, as I reflected on it, I was really like, I'm really not sure that that's actually what I should have done, you know, in this circumstance. And so I felt I needed some kind of expiation by writing something about this, you know, once the statute of limitations for extradition to Uruguay had expired. But I didn't know how to get a handle on it. And so it sat in the back of my mind literally for years. Like, I want to do something with that. I feel like I need to say something about that, but I don't know how to say it. And then this call appeared with this theme, ghosts. And I saw the call and I was super excited. I've always wanted to be in room. Like, that would be incredible to be in. But like, what am I going to do like with this theme? And then that's when the click happened for me. And I was like, this is like the key that can help me unlock that. Like, this is the approach into that experience that can help me unpack it. And that brought me to that opening. Like that, I think, is where like the initial germ of like, I need to start in the cemetery. 
And I need to start with that comparison and that role flip. Like I couldn't have gotten there if I didn't see this call <laughs> and then play off of that to unlock that. But once I had that, it was like, now I know like this doesn't begin like on a plane to Buenos Aires. It doesn't begin on the ferry over there. It doesn't begin like a whole bunch of places I could have started it. It has to start in the cemetery because it's about a haunting. I love that because I've spoken to a couple other contributors in this podcast preparation, the series that we're doing. And they have also spoken about submitting to the call for submissions and that that was like the kernel that kind of inspired them. Obviously, they have the story like you had locked inside you. And then you're like, okay, here's a key that I can use to unlock the story. I love that. And that's about like where you started, I guess, physically in the story, if that makes sense in the story, but I think so. But then there's the emotional start as well, too, which I also found it's like, it's what makes it compelling is sort of these two things that are happening. It's like, okay, we're on a journey and there's a purpose to the journey and it's meaningful in these ways to this writer. I guess that's more of an observation than a question, but if you wanted to talk more about that, I'd love to hear. I guess, I mean, that was the other piece that was waiting to slot in, right? I couldn't write this piece until I'd come out. And so it sat for a long time, I think, because of that. Also, because I didn't have the perspective to be able to reframe really what I had been doing or what I should have been doing. And I think that's like, I've worked in education most of my life. I've spent a lot of time working with children and it's always <laughs> like, you've done something, but like, it's not just about apologizing and being like, oh, that thing I did isn't, what should you have done and what can you do now? Like, and until I came out, I didn't have the framing to be able to go back to that experience and be like, what is it that I like, kind of want to advise my past self that maybe I should have done? Like, what is it that is that lesson for growth here? Yeah, that really makes a lot of sense. And I appreciate that as a CNF writer myself and working with CNF writers. It's like the thing that we have about our stories is we have to actually live and get to a place of growth so that we can then reflect back on those experiences. So yeah, that's really important. And thank you for telling our listeners about that. We've already covered kind of my stock questions like, why did you submit to Rim's Ghost Issue? So that was great to hear about the call calling you in that way. Can you maybe talk a bit about what happened, I guess, when you hit submit, the experience of publishing with us? How was it? I guess I'm asking for a review of my editing, maybe, I guess. I don't know. No, it was lovely. And it was really funny, especially like in the context of that journey, like of my coming out, because you know, I first encountered room years and years and years ago, like when I started out seriously in writing, I mean, I've been writing since I was like five years old, <laughs> but like when I started actually like sending things out places for publication and trying to get kind of into that more professional writer's space, like I quickly ran across room. And I remember like reading this magazine and being like, the work in here is just like top notch, like you would be somebody like if you were in room, but then also like not having come out yet at that point, like having the thought like, but I will never be in room, like no, no one at room will ever want to hear from me. And so it, it was incredibly validating to have this call come up and be like, I have something to say that like somebody like there would actually want to hear that the readers of room like might actually want to read. And then to, to send that in and to get that acceptance was just incredible, both like as a writer, like, and as a trans woman, like to come into the space of feminist community, you know, that room holds was incredibly powerful. So thank you for, <laughs> for, for that. But in terms of like the process as a writer, it 
felt very smooth. I felt like the call did a really good job, I felt, of articulating what the editors were wanting to see while leaving you know enough space for interpretation to be able to take that a lot of different ways. I felt like it really hit that sweet spot of inspiration and guidance, but freedom for the writer. The process itself, I mean, going, going through the submittal system is, is smooth. I was pleasantly surprised at how quickly I received a response, given like there's a very venerable publication that's receiving lots of submissions. Like I'm used to waiting a very long time sometimes <laughs> from places, but I felt like it really moved fairly quickly. The communication was clear and consistent throughout, like the galley process and the reviews. And like there were a couple corrections that I sent back. It was like, oh, like, you know, there needs to be an adjustment here in the header or whatever. It was very small things, you know, and then it got taken care of very, very quickly. And then, you know, at the end, like it, it comes out in the magazine. And I mean, it's a beautifully produced magazine and it's just lovely to get to see it there. Thank you. And I really just want to thank you so much because what makes the magazine so awesome is that people do trust us with their stories and, you know, saving up that story to find that place to submit to. And I'm so happy that Room is welcoming in that sense, in that we attract such great writers with great things to share. So thank you for trusting us and contributing to us. Well, thank you for making this space. I'm glad that you mentioned that because it bears saying that it really mattered, like that room is a space that can be trusted with this kind of work. Of all the things I have ever written, this is probably the one I was most nervous about putting out to be read by strangers <laughs> because of its confessional nature, because like it's showing me at a really important moment in my life, but not necessarily like one of the moments I'm proudest of. And so like the fact that room provides that space where I felt like that could be held in a, in a spirit of inquiry and healing and reparative reading I was able to share that without feeling like I was going to be exposed in doing so. And I think that has a lot to do with the tone of the magazine that the editorial board maintains and that contributors consistently maintain and the way that community is built around the publication. Yeah, I'm hoping that our dancing around more of the themes and the events of the story is attracting people to want to pick up an issue and read the story because it's brilliant. And I really hope they do. I'm trying not to spoiler it too hard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of that trust, I guess, you mentioned that this is maybe the piece that felt most sensitive to you, but when you're sending out your work in general, how often are you doing that? And just how do you choose where to submit? And I should qualify that I'm asking because our listeners are mostly emerging writers who are also navigating those waters as well. Sure. That has changed markedly over the time that I've been doing this. When I got into it, I was absolutely guilty of being that person who just like shot guns stuff out to, you know, any place that is open. Like you know, in my early 20s, I did plenty of that, spent hours and hours just going like alphabetically through the list in duotrope. <laughs> And that was effective to the extent that I did land pieces and get published and that you know helped kind of get me started. But it's also a really inefficient <laughs> way to go about things and ultimately not a very satisfying one because like, and, and I think you know, this is something we're going to talk about you know, later, like what a literary magazine is or what it does. Like, and I think when I first came to trying to get my work out there, I was thinking of it as just kind of square footage of paper that words can go on, right? It's like, well, why not my words? Like get them on. Actually, something that I learned from working in academic publishing, which I did for a long time, like, and I worked on like scholarly journals 
and really got a sense of like the community of practice disciplinarily that goes around a journal that's dedicated to a particular topic and working on those boards and being like, everybody knows, like we do blind review of things, but like everybody knows everybody who ends up submitting to this because they all work on the same things. And like seeing that community built there, like gave me some insight. Like at that point I hadn't been now, like I work on literary magazines. I'm you know an editor for a couple of them. At that point, I hadn't had that in really yet. But then I was able to conceptualize like a literary magazine is doing the same thing. Like it's not just pages that work can go on. It's a community that forms around the magazine. And I became a lot more deliberate about where I send and what I send where. And it's also partly just a process of maturing as a writer and getting a better sense, I think, of who I write for. And I know like there's a certain school of thought that's like, I, you know, I hit like universal human experiences and tried to, like, you know, it's like, I mean, hopefully, yeah, there's you know, some layers of that, but like, it's not fundamentally what I'm doing. There are definitely audiences that I'm writing more for than I am other audiences. Like, and so like finding the venues that make the connections with the communities that I think are going to get the most out of what it is that I have to put on the page. And so at this point, like it's a mix of things, you know, over the course of the years, I've gotten to you know, no different publications and no editors behind them. I mean, so I kind of have my stable of the ones that like I'm really familiar with. Social media has been huge. And this is why, like, if anybody out there is kind of coming into the writing community, being like, why is everybody melting down about Elon Musk and Twitter? It's because like Twitter was such a powerful tool for this. It transformed what I was able to do as a writer because... I could go and I could follow these journals. I could follow their editors. I read a great piece that just blew me away by somebody somewhere. And then I followed them. And then like that created the links and the recommendations they retweeted. And then I'm seeing the calls that are interesting to them. Like, and that networking like really made it possible to find your niche and to get yourself in there. Like I have pieces that I published that happened entirely because some editor made an offhand comment on Twitter. And I was like, I'd love to contribute something to that. That landed me an essay in the Times of Israel. <laughs> like just incredible opportunities that come out of that. And it's really about like finding that niche and finding that connection. So now like when new writers are asking me, like, how do I get started with this? I say, you set up a Twitter account <laughs> or maybe now Blue Sky. We'll see what happens, right? But you, know, you set up this account and you follow these folks and you find the publications that are speaking to experiences that you have, to communities that you're already a part of that are important to you. You make those kinds of connections and then you go through really thinking about like, who am I talking to here and how do I get it in front of those people? <laughs> And so that's really shifted the way that I approach it. But at this point, like I've got kind of that stable of things. And then I've got like the broader range of things that I just happen to hear about still. And depending on the piece, I may still hit some of those. So my core now really is a lot more targeted to like these publications I know are like spaces I want to be in. And the work that's closest to me is going very deliberately to them. You know, but I've always got like just some stray things lying around that are like, this like could kind of go anywhere. And then like if somebody I know retweets the call from someplace. I'm like, I haven't heard of this before, but it's open. Like I've got five minutes, I'll send them three phones. You know? But yeah, the core of it is much more targeted now than it used to be. I love hearing about that progression because it's like also a journey, I guess, but of like self-knowledge as a writer too and going, okay, this is what I'm hitting on in my writing and this is who I'm speaking to and really understanding it's so important, I think, to know that we're not speaking to everyone and thinking about the real, you know, more specific audience that we're speaking to. So thank you. That was great. 
And so I guess with that new development in your writing, I'm wondering how do you handle feedback, both good and bad about your writing today, maybe even compared to before, let's say? In a submissions context, I mean, the good news is that you don't actually get that much bad feedback. You just get rejections and they tend to be form rejections. (laughs) So it's not like, you know, people are giving you negative feedback about things. Like, although, I mean, I think sometimes, you know, beginning writers do take the form rejection itself as negative feedback about things. And I know like editors will say this till they're blue in the face and I will repeat it both as like an editor a couple of different places myself and as a writer, the form rejection is not actually criticism of your work. It is a statement that it was not the work that an editor needed right at this moment. And I'm actually in the process right now of assembling a manuscript for submission for my first poetry collection. And that process is very illuminating because I'm going through my own work and being like, I really love this poem, but it just doesn't belong in this group of poems that are doing this particular thing. It's my own poem and I love it, but I'm cutting it. You know, It's important to bear that in mind when you get that form rejection. It doesn't necessarily mean anything about whether or not the editors liked your poem. It means they didn't find that it fit with what they're trying to put together right now because there's a whole separate art to curating a body of work, a collection of things that all fit together and that hang together and that keep a consistent like theme or focus. That is a separate art and a separate discipline from writing the individual pieces. So don't take those form rejections to heart. I'm occasionally fortunate to get some positive feedback or some like useful suggestions of like, this wasn't our thing, but have you considered asking over here or like, now from some editors that I know? And that's another advantage to taking that more targeted approach. Like when you are a repeat submitter to a publication that you've got some kind of affinity with in some way, then you start to sometimes get a little bit more like personalized feedback on things and helpful suggestions, which is lovely. And another like great advantage I found to taking that more targeted approach. Yeah, I love that building that relationship. And it's so true that when you see someone submitting multiple times, you start to kind of recognize their work and get a sense of them too. I want to ask you about what you're currently working on. You just mentioned a book of poems. And I guess, you know, those are written, I suspect, and you're putting them together into a book. But what is currently haunting you in your writing and any fresh writing that you're working on? I certainly thought the process of putting together a collection was mostly going to be, okay, like I've got this body of things that I've written. I think there's a collection's worth of material here that I'm really proud of. I'm going to like put that together. And what I've found is that it's not as simple as that. And so as I've been assembling that, and maybe it's partly the subject material, like a lot of it is stuff that I've written over the last couple of years and has very much to like do with this journey of like coming out and transition and reflecting back over various incidents in my life like this, like with a new kind of perspective and a new understanding. As I've been assembling that, I keep hitting these points where I'm like, there's a piece missing. I've got an arc going like through this section that's conveying something important, but like I don't have something that gets the reader from here to here. Those pieces are written, like, but that thing in the middle is gone. So I find myself writing a whole lot more new material, like in the four weeks before I'm supposed to have this into the publisher's <laughs> deadline for the contest. <laughs> There's a lot more writing of new material than I expected. And some of the things that I'm playing with really intensely in that that have been coming out of that are a lot of intersection of 
thought about gender and heritage and mortality and the way that our identities relate to time and transform over time and are shaped by different contexts in time through a series of deaths and rebirths and the way that we sometimes have to rebirth ourselves and are sometimes rebirthed by other people or you know by events and so yeah a number of the things that i've written recently i find are kind of more storytelling pieces they're short stories in verse <laughs> a lot of them in different ways that now like play on this and set you know these kind of personifications or characters that are able to carry parts of myself into different historical settings and contexts that create opportunities for them to explore that. That's very exciting. Is there a time frame for that collection or what's happening? <laughs> right now, the time frame is just, I need to submit this to the publisher's contest by the 15th. Oh, okay. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then we'll see what happens after that. But that's my horizon. And I have to keep reminding myself that like, once you get like that editorial process, like and getting feedback, right? Like nobody writes a brilliant collection as it is the first time and then sends it in and the publisher just prints what's been sent. Like, so I keep reminding myself too that I'm going to send this in and then I am going to get a bunch of feedback. And at that point, you do start to get more detailed feedback. And some of it might be like, this is not working. Like, this isn't flowing here. Is this piece really necessary? <laughs> and there's going to be you know, an opportunity to rework with some of that input and some of that perspective. And so I keep reminding myself, like, this isn't necessarily the thing that's going to go out the door from the print shop. It just needs to be the best mock-up of that that I can give to an editor. <laughs> that's a really good thing to remember to get out of your head, because I think sometimes there's that analysis paralysis almost that happens where it's like you're trying to get it to be perfect air quoting here, which doesn't work on a podcast, but anyway, I'll speak them. And then you don't get it out the door because you're like, oh, well, I haven't got it to that perfect place yet. Yeah. Well, I start nitpicking like every word with myself and especially because of the nature of a lot of things that I write. You see that a little bit in this essay, just that it, you know, it's about Domira Agostini. Like a lot of what I write is very richly intertextual. There's a lot of references and a lot of allusions that I just wrote a poem and I, and I tweeted about this, like, you know, the wild thing about being a writer, right? Is that somebody will be like, what was it like for you, like, being in the closet? And you'd be like, hold on. And then three days later, you come back, like, with these 17 stanzas about a Belarusian yeshiva student who accidentally incinerates a mythical prophetic bird by the intensity of concentration on a 14th century Hebrew essay. Like, <laughs> like that is literally a piece that's in this collection or going to be if the editor doesn't come back and go, no, this isn't working for me. But like, there's so much interwoven in like these historical references and these literary references. I think it becomes extra easy to get bogged down there because like I'm doing research, like I'm writing an academic paper. And it's like, is this exactly the quote from that author like that I should be using in this? Is there a better one? Do I need to read like all of their collected works to make sure I've got the best symbolic reference for them in this one half line, like where I'm going to kind of allude to them in case a reader knows them, like it enriches the thing. <laughs> like, then yeah, I have to like stop myself again and be like, or I could use the quote that I thought of in the first place because it was the thing like that actually like made me think of this and start down this and just call that good, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I love it. These are real writerly problems. It's like getting that perfect quote. And that's, I mean, fascinating. I'm just really excited to see that collection out in the world one day. So I will be looking for that. 
So I want to bring us to what I call the quick lit round, but it doesn't have to, it can be quick or slow. You can fill in the blanks as I start these sentences. You complete them as as you would like. Over the next six months, I will answer. Yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Do some research and <laughs> think about illusions that'll work. So I am calling on you to do it in this moment of time, but you can take as long or as brief as you'd like to complete. So the first is being a writer is? It's weird and it's tremendously rewarding and it's really hard, like much more so than I think a lot of people think it's going to be when they get started, certainly than, you know, than I did. But I think if I had to pick one thing, at least at this moment with like the stuff that I'm working on now it would be being a writer is an act of faith in other people. <laughs> I mentioned before that I used to work in radio and I would work like late night shifts in radio. And this would come to my mind a lot too. Like there's a faith, right? That I speak into this microphone and somebody's listening because nobody could be. Like nobody could be tuned in right now. I could just be talking to myself <laughs> in this shut-in basement room at 2.30 in the morning. <laughs> but you choose to believe like somebody out there has tuned in for this, right? Somebody out there wants to hear this. And writing to me is very much like that too. I write so much stuff. This just depends on such a weird, you know, concatenation of like things and experiences and knowledge that I happen to have. Where am I going to find the transsexual Russian Jew, like with an extensive knowledge of Byzantine history and Orthodox Christian theology, like that would be required to decode this thing I just wrote? But you have to believe that somebody out there is the reader for that work. This is the thing I've learned in librarianship, too. There was an Indian librarian named Ranganathan in the 30s. He wrote this book and articulated his five laws of librarianship that are still like how the whole profession operates. And two of them are that, you know, every book has its reader and every reader has their book. And I think like as a writer too, like those are good laws to bear in mind. Whatever it is you write, there is somebody out there who is the reader for that. And before you've even written it, there's somebody out there who needs this to be their book. <laughs> and you just have to believe it and keep going. That does feel like a good philosophy to follow when it comes to writers as well. So my second Fill in the blank is literary magazines are? I touched on this one before. Literary magazines are communities. They're groups of people. And those people are doing something by being together in that space. To my mind, the secret to successful submissions then is understanding, like, what is the thing the people in this space are trying to do? <laughs> and is that the thing that you can and want to contribute to? Once you can answer those questions, you know whether or not like this is where you want to put your work. Is this the place you are reading people that are talking about the things that you care about and talking about them in ways that move you? Because that's where you want to be you know, with your work as well. That community aspect to me is everything about a magazine. I'm nodding because hard to agree on that. <laughs> Editing requires, as you're finding right now. <laughs> brutality. Um, <laughs> but more than that, again, like so many things that could go in there and they'd all be true. But if I have to pick one, I would say editing requires growth. There's that famous saying about, right, you can't like fix a problem with the same mindset that created the problem. It's the same way with writing. Like you can't 
rewrite this piece from the same place that you wrote it in. There has to be some growth. And sometimes that's like macro level. I mean, like with this essay where it's like, I have this idea, I've jotted down some notes, but like it's not coming together. Like I'm not happy with what I'm getting. Like, and, you know, and it sits for years, like while you figure it out. Sometimes it happens on a very micro level. And the growth that you need to rewrite that piece is just the growth that you did writing it the first time. Like you get to the end and you're like, oh, now I understand so much better. I'm going to go back to the beginning. You know, or sometimes it's just like you jot down some notes you know, and then you sleep on it. Or like I do a lot of revising or like genesis of ideas on my commute to work. <laughs> like that is the growth time I need is that 30 minutes of silence and isolation where I can think my own thoughts without my adorable nine-year-old clambering all over me. So yeah. That's a parent speaking because I recognize that. <laughs> Very much so. So yeah, like the growth might be something that takes years of maturation and it might be the insight that you have in that small moment. But like there has to be that growth. When you come back to rewrite, in some way, you're a different person than the person who wrote this the first time. It strikes me, normally I don't interrupt my own quick lit round, but what you're saying also is true. One thing I see sometimes with writers is they can't see themselves on the finish line necessarily because they don't understand the growth that's going to happen just by doing the writing itself and then getting, you know, and then having that growth and being able to do the editing. And it's like, you're going to go through all these steps and then you'll be able to sound smart in the interview about your book or whatever, because you have done all of that other work in between. So you don't need to start there. You're going to finish there, but you need to start. <laughs> no, I was just telling my sister, like, it's the best kind of therapy. Like I said, I'm writing new material now to like fill in these gaps. And like, and I keep writing things and being like, I didn't know that about myself. <laughs> you know, like, yes. There's yeah. so much, yeah, so much that you discover, but like you can't do it unless you actually sit down in front of the paper physically or virtually. Like, you know, I do most of my writing like in Google Keep Notes and in Google Docs, but sit down in front of it and give it the time and do that really hard work of putting something on that page when you're not sure what goes on that page yet. It's like, but it'll come. And that's another part of being a writer is inactive faith, right? Like it's faith in yourself too, and as well as a readership. Yeah. And faith in that growth too. Cause I was thinking too, like, what if there isn't that reader? I think there always is, but what, even if there isn't that reader out there to me, the writing itself is also of merit. Like we need to do it anyway. And like you said, the faith in ourselves. Okay. <laughs> I'll stop interrupting my own quick lit round here. So rejection for a writer means? Nothing. Nothing at all. All it means is that one person at that moment did not find that this thing you wrote was the thing they needed to read. This was not the book for this reader at this time. It might be tomorrow. It might have been yesterday if they'd encountered it then, like, and they've just moved on. It will be for somebody else. All that means is this was not the connection of minds that needed to happen in the universe at this particular moment. But like, it's a big universe and there's lots of connections to be made. And then finally, writing community is? So much more important than you think it is. There is this like pop culture idea, I think, of the writer as like this kind of isolated figure. And it comes out of like this whole romantic tradition. I think of like that Caspar David Friedrich painting, right? Like of the wonder above the sea of fog. <laughs> And we think of like the romantic poets and there was very much this like, I go out like into the wilderness alone to be with my thoughts and with God, you know, and like channel my inspiration that. And then like, it's a thing that people will talk about quite legitimately, like when they're talking about 
the grind of the work, right? That you have to make the time and you have to make the space. I know so many people who have read Stephen King's like writing on writing. And that's the thing that he talks about is like, I had to go into the room, like, and close the door and do the thing. Like, you know, in that respect, you know, Virginia Woolf too, right? Like a room of one's own. So like, it's a thing that we talk about because it's important and it's hard to stake out that space in that time. But it doesn't all happen there. And it can't happen if that's kind of all you're doing. <laughs> I was just telling a good friend of mine, Ella Sheva Fox, she just came out with her first poetry collection from Bell Point Press called Spellbook for the Sabbath Queen. And it's brilliant. But I was talking to her like about like this process as I'm putting stuff together for, for what I hope will be my first published collection. And you know, and I told her like there's a couple of pieces in here like that you've seen that are dedicated to you. But like I feel like I should dedicate the whole book to you because like what you've shown me through your work has so transformed the way that I approach my work. I wouldn't be the writer that I am today if it weren't for her. And going back before that, in previous iterations of my growth as a writer, Mina Loy, uh, who is a like early 20th century Anglo-American poet, I discovered her work in my early 20s, and that was you know somebody else who just like completely overturned my idea of what poetry is and what it could do and what the English language is capable of. And so you know Loy's work was tremendously important. So there's a community like through time and historically, and there's also you know a community in the present with your contemporaries and people you can actually talk to and be like, hey, how did you like organize these pieces? <laughs> the sharing of ideas and the brainstorming, but even more than that, just the opportunity to interact on a human level with somebody whose mind works in ways that you find enlivening and inspiring and enriching and who will spark and catalyze, you know, even like when they're not trying to like spark and catalyze ideas for you, you know, that wouldn't have come up otherwise. So very much like the, you don't know what's going to come out, like until you sit down, like at that page and make it happen. Like you also like have no idea how important that's going to be until you just make time to be with those people and make it a priority to build those relationships and you know interact and you know check in on them with a text message every once in a while like just because that is so enriching and you know as as humans this is kind of fundamental to our nature it's super important i think all the time about gorillas and sign language right because gorillas can be taught sign language they can express extremely complex ideas linguistically through sign language once you teach them a lot of people have seen like the video clips of like, you know, asking for bananas, but like, you know, you go through like that research, there's cases where gorillas narrate stories about things that happened to you know them or other like gorillas in their pod. Like it's very sophisticated. And yet no primate spontaneously has ever developed a system of linguistic communication and they don't teach each other. You can teach them and they'll use it with handlers and with trainers and they will not teach it to other gorillas. I find this really remarkable because humans very famously, there's a very famous case in linguistics from Nicaragua, where at one point, like they created the first school for deaf children in Nicaragua. And they brought these children from all over the country. And most had no formal like sign language experience or training because there were no other deaf people like in their villages. Many of them had like a handful of kind of signs that had been ad hoc worked out with their families, but they were all like different. And they brought all these students together. And to the utter astonishment of the staff of the school over the course of a few months, like they watched in real time as the students created an entire functioning sign language with a shared vocabulary with rules of grammar that they all adhered to, like 
this contrast is so incredible to me that like, you can teach gorillas to sign and they'll use it and they'll tell you stories and they won't share it with other gorillas. You can put a bunch of human beings together who have no shared linguistic basis and in a matter of months, they will create a language because the need, like the need to communicate is so powerful. <laughs> like it's so intrinsic to what makes us human, not the ability, like other things have the intelligence to do it, but the proclivity, the emotional need to do it that gorillas don't seem to have, you know, and don't seem to, but that we do. So that like undergirds some of my thinking too about writing community, like writing community is a very special case of that, but it builds out of that same, like very deep seated, very essential human need. Yes, by all means, get a room of your own and shut yourself in it to do some real work without kids climbing on you. But <laughs> make sure that you're also being just as serious and intentional about participating in community, about building friendships with other writers, about having those opportunities to exchange ideas and just to kind of marinate in each other's ways of seeing the world, because that's powerfully transformative. Oh my goodness, Razel. Well, you've moved me with your writing submission. You've moved me with this story to tears a little bit. So I'm a little verklempt, shall we say, from that. But thank you so much for you know, sharing your passion for writing and your ideas of community. I've really enjoyed this conversation and I'm really grateful to you. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for yeah, inviting me in and for having a chat. And this has been you know, a lovely way to, to start my day over in this time zone. So that was Razel Grace. I told you that was moving right. I'm not crying. You're crying. No, I was definitely crying too at the end of that interview. And while I was very moved, I was also really moved by the trust that Razel put into Us Room magazine, the community that we are, the editors who we are. I don't take that lightly at all, that writers need to have that kind of trust and even, you know, have that kind of faith in us before they contribute personal revealing writing that seeks to deeply connect with us and our readers and I think that's really noteworthy for any writer who wants to follow that example from both both of the writers featured in this episode, contributors to Room 46.3, that trust that you want to have with the places where you will eventually send your work or send your most vulnerable work, let's say. I think that's really vital to be selective and to really pick the right environment to receive your words. Hello, Luminous Writers. Stepping away for a moment from my conversations with two writers, just having finished that fairly intense conversation with Razel Grace, which is a word intense that often describes my favorite conversations and also describes, or sort of describes anyway, the program that I'm going to tell you about, the Write, Publish, and Shine Intensive, currently open for registration. When you're hearing this, if you're listening on the day of release, this is actually the final day for registration for this session of the Write, Publish, and Shine Intensive. If you're from the future, you're listening to this, it's possible that it may be coming up soon. So definitely go to rachelthompson.co slash intensive to check it out. This is my intensive course that brings together all of the goodness of my three courses on generating, revising, and publishing your work, plus more. This holistic intensive takes writers through the journey of developing new luminous writing with lots of feedback, training to help you skillfully edit your work, and a custom-tailored plan to submit your writing for publication. 
You'll finish the program with completed short works of writing already submitted for publication to places that most fit your voice. So my question for you is, do you crave support and structure so that you can write your most luminous work? If any of the following sound familiar, like your writing practice has slipped and you need deadlines, encouraging feedback and help to hone in on your unique voice, or you feel overwhelmed about where to begin when it comes to revising your writing and want to develop your editorial skills, or you don't know what to send to LitMags or whether there's a place out there for your unique voice, or you want feedback from a writer and editor who has your back, that's me, and a community of writers to support you and your dreams of writing and publishing. If any of those things sound familiar, I would love to have you join the intensive. I think you'd be a great fit. At the end of the intensive, you will have polished several stories, poems, or hybrid work, submitted your writing to publications that fit you, prepared for a big yes for your writing and your writing dreams, and found your place in a community of writers. So you already know me as the host of this podcast, the Write, Publish, and Shine podcast. And I'm also a literary magazine editor with Room, which you also know because you're listening to this series of episodes on Room. I'm also a published author and an online course instructor here to help you publish your most luminous work. So in the intensive program, I help you every step of the way to write, publish, and shine with personal feedback and support. During the intensive, you're going to have three one-on-one mentorship calls, a one-hour personal manuscript review session, a warm seat revision review with me, plus group coaching calls during the revision and Let Make Love course sections. I offer a sliding scale payment option and reconciliation pricing for BIPOC and or trans writers in an effort to make the program more accessible to those communities. So we start very soon and we go for four months of dedicated writing, revising and publishing practice with lots of support for me. You can learn more and register at rachelthompson.co slash intensive. Now back to my interview with Annette C. Boehm, who spoke to me and even read her poem that we published in the issue aloud, which is called Credits, Dead Girl Number Three. Before you hear our interview, I need to make a sound note because the audio during our conversation was far from fantastic. So you may have some difficulty hearing everything. And I really want you to be able to hear all of what Annette had to say. So know that I publish a transcript for every episode and there's a real human who works on these, Dia Jaffrey. So it's usually up about a day after the episode comes out. So if you'd like to read along and be sure of all the beautiful ideas Annette shared with me about her personal approach to writing, please do. The transcripts are attached to each episode. In this case, it's episode 81. So up at rachelthompson.co slash podcast slash 81. Here's my conversation with Annette. So I want to welcome you to the Write, Publish and Shine podcast, Annette Seaboom. And thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me about your work, Credit Dead Girl Number 3, that appeared in Room 46.3 Ghosts. Credit Dead Girl Number 3, to me anyway, felt like a commentary on how women are represented in media and was a definite yes for our editorial team. I'm wondering why you submitted it to Room's ghost issue. Felt that it was a really good match because the woman in this poem, the dead girl number three, she's alive and dead at the same time. Like she is being looked at and she's being seen, but she's not seen. She's just sort of a body that happens and that pushes the plot further. And she of herself isn't really important, which is 
kind of an experience that I can relate to a lot. I mean, it's often conditioned to see ourselves through outside eyes and to look at ourselves from the outside. And that's what this woman is also doing. And she's seeing herself as dead, even though she's not dead. I'm going to skip ahead to one of my questions, because I think you've already started touching on this, because I felt really drawn to the poem, because there is something familiar in that experience of being seen and unseen at the same time, being important yet unimportant, visible, invisible. Can you tell me, and our listeners who are also largely, you know, emerging writers too, can you tell me about how you wrote the poem and tell me more about how those themes were resonating with you as you wrote it? I must have been watching some sort of crime show. (laughs) And there were obviously bodies involved. And I figured, okay, how often do we see in these shows, fictional or not? And we don't really get anything about this person except X was murdered or this and this happened. And, you know, basically reducing the person to a body or to an incident when really a person is a person and it seems to happen a lot more often with women or maybe I'm just noticing it more I can definitely relate to this sense that somehow we are objects and not subjects we are in service of something or somebody else we appear or we are seen in service of something or somebody else we're not really important of our own accord or you know just based on who or what we are and it's just an experience that I have made and that I thought was really well captured in the idea of just being an extra and a body without a name, without a story. And the prose poem style would work really well because it's sort of like a voiceover, the end credits of a show (laughs) where you see all these names flooding past and you have no idea who's who and why and what. So would you like to read the poem for us now? Yeah, sure. Credits, Dead Girl Number 3. You've seen me dead at least once. I lie perfectly still, my head and limbs at some unnatural angle, blood-soaked shirt, maroon Rorschach on the floor. More often than not, it's the kitchen, so it's tiles, cleans up easily. Living room, bedroom, more of a mess. If I'm lucky, I've died in an office, clutching scraps of a document that will shed light. Mostly, though, it doesn't matter how or why. I'm just part of the scenery. A bigger picture. I've seen myself dead so many times, I hold my breath when I lie down at night. I'm good at being dead. I lie perfectly. Each morning, surprised at all this blood still in me, my empty hands. Thank you for that. What are some of the other themes that you feel drawn to write about in your work? And can you tell us about what you're currently writing? Well, themes that... I'm generally interested in is basically is what it is to be human. <laughs> I think that very early on, I decided for myself that literature, stories, and poems is a way to explore what it means to be human and to experience, you know, being human. I don't know if that's because I already realized that I was somehow on the outside. I think when I, when I decided I wanted to study literature... <laughs> and then later decided I wanted to write, it was because I wanted to understand what was going on and why people do the things they do. I'm really interested in that. I just finished a book-length manuscript poem on experiences with mental health 
and mental illness, which is the most personal thing of the third book, when or if it does come out. It's the most personal thing I have so far because it's such a sort of a taboo topic. People are aware that there is, you know, mental health and mental illness, but there's really such a stigma to it still. Over here, over there, I'm guessing it's Canada similar to the attitudes in America. I'm not sure. I haven't been in such a long time. <laughs> but I wanted to talk, give a first-hand experience account. So first of all, to help some people feel seen, because when I look at poetry, and usually when it's about depression or something like that, it is sad. <laughs> and it doesn't help me. It makes me feel worse. And, you know, that's not what I want. I would like for people to feel seen, but also for them to feel hopeful. I mean, I've been dealing with mental health problems for 30 years. <laughs> and for the most time, I didn't really know what it was. And I would never have talked about it to anybody because I thought, oh, this is so shameful. This is something that nobody else happens to have the same problems. I'm just, you know, not tough enough or I'm just not good enough. <laughs> but I have learned a lot over the last years and I wanted to write a book with these exposure and say, this is what it feels like. And for people who feel the same thing and maybe feel like they're alone with it and for People who have no idea, because there are enough people out there who have no idea what it feels like <laughs> to have a serious depression or to have an urge to harm yourself or to have problems with emotions, recognizing them or understanding what other people are doing around you. That's a big topic. And it's super personal. <laughs> but at the same time, I think it's super, we all got to deal with this whether we realize it or not. If it's not you, then it's your cousin or your neighbor or your colleague or your doctor's friend or whoever. <laughs> so yeah, that's something I've been interested in. And I started a new, a new textual project where I am building poems out of an already existing text, kind of a pet thing. I'm doing collages and I don't know where it's going to go, maybe a chapter. I, lo I love that with the first project you mentioned, the one that's really vulnerable. How do you prepare yourself for that kind of publication and being seen in that way too, going, okay, I'm going to peel back this layer on this taboo topic. I think it helps that I am not really on the job market <laughs> and I don't think I will be anytime soon simply because I am currently not able to work because I am um, compromised um, health-wise. If I were looking for work, <laughs> I would probably not be willing to put myself out there and make myself obviously vulnerable because so much depends on people believing you can do more than full-time and work extra hours and do all sorts of volunteering and all sorts of things. There's such an ableist attitude toward work that really, you know, your work defines you when really it shouldn't. And for some people, it can't. <laughs> I am not afraid of missing out on job opportunities because I don't have any <laughs> right now. At the same time, I have been thinking about writing about this for a long time, but it has taken a while to figure out how to do it, how I want to do it, and how much of myself I'm comfortable putting out there. Like Some hints of it are definitely in my first and second book, but they're not as obvious as this third manuscript that I have. So I think I have just grown more comfortable with myself 
as I have learned to understand things better, and I just want to pass that along. What has also helped it definitely is that I have received, kindly gotten some diagnosis that makes sense, whereas over the last years, I never really knew what exactly was happening. And now that I'm able to make more sense of things, I feel more comfortable saying, hey, this is me and this is what's happening. And this is what that feels like. I love that motivation of kind of shining a light both for people who maybe don't understand, but in particular, for I think for people who've had similar experiences or feeling the things that you're describing in the book, I think would be really helpful for readers. So I'm glad that you're doing that. Glad that you're able to do it and not worry about employment. I guess I'm also wondering, do you have any kind of practices to care for yourself as you put work out in the world? Like, it seems to me just from my own experience, that kind of vulnerability in your writing requires a level of like a self-connection and self-knowledge. I choose carefully where I send work. These very personal poems obviously don't fit just anywhere. Like you got to pick where you want it to end up. That obviously is a way of taking care of myself. I shared these poems and the collection as a whole with two poet friends to see what they thought and to see, you know, if they thought stuff fits or maybe I should change the order of things or maybe something sticks out and doesn't really fit because it belongs somewhere else. And that sort of feedback is really helpful because I know these people and I trust these people and I value their opinion. Whereas, you know, when I'm sending things out, I don't know who's going to read that. Like if I send to a mag, it's not just with the editor. They usually have a set of readers if they're not a very tiny magazine. So it could be anybody who reads this. So I don't really know. And they say no, I don't really know why. <laughs> That's something that I try to keep in mind in general when I send work out and get rejections, which we always will. If you send something out, there's a good chance of getting a rejection. But if you don't send anything out, there's a 100% chance of never getting an acceptance. <laughs> so with one to accept, to get the other. <laughs> Obviously, it's a little more sad when it's something that you're really personally invested in, but then I am personally invested in all of my poems. And you mentioned being selective about where you send work. I'm just wondering how you came about to submit this poem to Room, and if there's anything you want to share about that selection and then the experience of publishing with us. I was looking through my email to figure out exactly where I first heard about Room. (laughs) And I suspect it was probably through Erica Dreyfus's practicing writer newsletter that she sends out every month, um, where she lists opportunities for all sorts of submissions, prose, fiction, poetry, nonfiction. And I find that very helpful. And there's another that I subscribe to, which is by Emily Stead. I don't remember right now what she calls it, but it's also a free resource that you can use where she lists like deadlines and things. And that's a good way for me, at least, to keep an eye on deadlines and on themes because they update it like once a month. I am so grateful for people like them who take the time to go through all of this information because there's a lot of information out there. Figure out, okay, what's happening when and where and put it in a handy-dandy list because I easily get overwhelmed and flood and I start looking just randomly, which I did the first couple of years I was sending out work. 
But if you have somebody who makes a list, it makes it easier. It's like we don't all have to do the same work. <laughs> Those are really helpful, I think. And um, when I was still on Twitter, which I'm not using anymore, sometimes you could just, you know, see people posting calls for submissions, or you could send out a thing saying, hey, anybody open? And then sometimes people would respond. On Mastodon, that's kind of, there's a few pieces there, so that's happening, but that's something you could do. Whenever I see something I like or I see a journal I like, I page and I add them to my own little, got a little document. <laughs> and then I make it, you know, just a note of the date that they're open and if they pay or not. I don't send to places usually that charge for submissions because there's a lot I can't afford it. Because like $3 doesn't sound like much, but it's a lunch. <laughs> for me, that's a lunch. And then there are places that charge for submissions but don't pay their writers. And I'm like, well, that doesn't, you know, for me, that doesn't quite work. If you're doing it as a hobby and you can afford it, by all means, send everywhere you want and pay for submissions. But if you can't afford it, then don't. There are enough places that don't charge or that have open submission periods for people who cannot afford it. And I'm grateful for that because 10 times a month, or something, that's a lot of money. I really appreciate what you say about that. I have the same question about a place that charges but doesn't pay the writers. It seems to me there's something missing in that equation there and that even just as a business model, it doesn't seem to make sense to me. What I think is even more of a problem, I mean, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Like contests usually enter work into contests unless it's a manuscript contest where I think in my work but it's like a single poem contest or something if you do the math it just sounds like a business model and not like a contest some places charge a lot of submission fees for sending one or three poems or one story and then somebody gets and a couple of hundred dollars or whatever but in the end where does all that other money go <laughs> i don't know i don't really understand it and i just cannot afford to just shell out 30 bucks you know i like the contests that have different levels of access to. So there's sort of sometimes different payment levels. On the other hand, I do understand because that is how a lot of lip eggs make their money. And I don't know, there's something that like you can win a prize and then they have to pay a contest judge. So I have a little bit of a defense around the contest, but I totally agree with you on the uh, paying to submit and not paying your writers, just the regular day-to-day -day of it. And some contests I'm totally fine with like rattle and sites like that where you actually get a subscription so you, you keep the journal running as you enter and that's totally fine but if you know if it's really just for sending in a poem yeah i don't know i can't afford it if you can afford it i am very happy for you but for a lot of people it's just not something we can do so we don't win prizes so that's just what it is <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing a bit about your submission practice. I think you've answered all my follow-up questions I had about choosing places to submit to and a little bit about handling feedback because you have your core group of people whose feedback really matters to you because they know your writing. Do you have anything else that you use when you do get feedback from journals that is sort of like part of your practice for how to handle feedback, good or bad? I... Whenever I get a personal rejection, 
I mean, we get a lot of formal rejections through submittable and stuff like that. And I understand people don't have a lot of time. I mean, I read or have read for literary journals as well as a poetry reader. So I know how many submissions you got to go through. So if you wanted to add a personal note to every single one of them, you would be taking forever. And it's all volunteer work. So that's not going to happen. So whenever you do get a personal rejection, I suggest taking note of it. Because that usually means somebody noticed and somebody felt strongly enough to take the extra time when they had a couple hundred other people to send the rejection to as well. Early on when I was sending out work, there was an editor who kept sending me personal rejections. He said, this was really close. I really almost took this one. Just keep trying. And I kept trying for a couple of years. He never took any of my poems. <laughs> but it certainly was an encouragement to me to hear, you know, I like what you're doing. You know, I see hundreds of poems, thousands of poems, and I like what you're doing. You're almost there. So well, no, it just feels so much nicer than, um, no. <laughs> I think it helps if you just put little notes whenever it says rejection. Okay, but this person maybe like that. And then you can sort of gauge what you want to send next time. Maybe they even say, oh, I like this poem particularly, and then... Whenever you have something that's kind of going in the same direction or has a similar feel to it, maybe try that with this person and see if it fits their next issue. So that's sort of put a little marker and say, hey, this was a friendly rejection. I like it. <laughs> I think that's so good to hold on to those moments of feedback because you're right, it's so rare. So <laughs> if you're getting anything, then you're winning, really. That's like, because it's so rare to even be able to be accepted to a place. So I've started sending out poetry in German here. I've been back in Germany for eight years now, and I figured, you know, might as well try. Even though I, I write in English primarily, and then I translated some of it into German. And the thing is, when you send stuff to these German publications, a lot of them, virtually all of them, say, we will not respond to your submission unless we want it. So you just sort of send something into the void, and you never hear anything back. And I did hear back from one magazine where I thought, oh, wow, this is pretty But again, I didn't know about all the others until basically like a year or longer had passed. I figured, you know, if they haven't said anything by now, they probably don't want it. But I think it's so much nicer to get a no thank you than to not hear anything. And I kind of prefer that. <laughs> I don't know. It might be just a personal thing, but I took the time to fish out the poems that I think are going to fit for your publication. I would appreciate you taking the time to say no thank you. <laughs> but cultures and different attitudes. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I didn't know that about German publications and it occurs to me that the biggest challenge would be what if you really want to publish in that place and you don't want to send your work out until you know that they really said no. And it's like, how long does that take exactly? It's hard to say. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to send them like 15 submissions and they'll be sitting on 15 of them and not reading them until like a year later. And they think, oh, why do you their text? And if they really don't like your style, you know, it's good to know. But just the way it is. And maybe that's just 10, 12 magazines that I sorted through and that I tried. I kind of gave up after that because I am easily discouraged that way, but at least in German. <laughs> in English, not so much. I keep sending stuff out because I keep getting positive because I am just hard-headed. <laughs> feels 
like it would be pretty discouraging for anyone to just get no response <laughs> at all. Thanks for sharing that with our listeners too, because those who are submitting in English can think, well, at least I'm getting a response, even if it's a no, at least it's something. Yeah, I think most people are really good at it. So I wanted to ask you to do our quick lip round. If you're okay with completing these sentences, you can answer brief form, long form, your call. People do both. So the first sentence to complete is being a writer is? Being a writer is being interested in everything everything. So I have Wikipedia deep dives on vegetarian spiders for the sake of a poem. Like you have to sort of, or I just, that will give you plenty to write about. Literary magazines are a great source of companionship. And then you can find voices there that you would not normally come across. Ideally, a literary magazine will have diversity and their works that they publish, and you will get to see a variety of styles and a variety of topics. And depending on where you are, if you're not like right now in graduate program or something, studying writing and studying your genre, you're not going to be likely to, you know, have that much exposure unless you actually look at literary Editing requires system and humility. You got to have a little distance to your text before you can really look at it and say, well, this part really doesn't belong to the top and this needs to be chopped and this needs to be expanded. And it's sort of like you're taking it apart and putting it back together. And so you can't be too emotional about it at that point. Emotion is good for getting it started. And then editing is where you take a step back and see, okay, from the personal, how do I get to something that is more You're reminding me of that. This may be the first and only time I'll quote Hemingway on this podcast, but I think it's like draft drunk, revise sober. Is that right? I'm trying to remember, but uh... <laughs> um, that might be, yeah, I, I don't have alcohol anymore, but yeah. But the idea of being really like wild in your words at the beginning, yeah, and then control your vision. Definitely. Rejection for a writer means. Rejection is always a disappointment, and it keeps happening, but at the same time, it's necessary. I mean, if you don't send anything out, you can't have anything accepted. Like I said, there are standard rejections, there are personal rejections, there are rejections that take forever because they've passed around this poem, and among the editorial team, like, it doesn't fit it in this issue or not. So rejection isn't always the same thing anything it helps to remember that just because it got rejected by one or seven or twelve literary magazines doesn't mean it's not a good poem or a good story it just means it didn't fit there at this point so maybe there's something you want to change but maybe it's just not the right time yet (laughs) and then finally writing community is vital i miss it a lot like i had writing community for real for the first time when I went into grad school for creative writing in 2011. And having regular workshops, having peers, and kind of looking at what they're doing, seeing their style and what works and what doesn't work, and hearing what they think works in your own stuff. Interesting. I mean, that really helps you, even if you don't like what they're doing or how they're writing 
you're exposed to it and you have to spend time with it and you think about it. And then you might learn something that can help you or you might be able to help them figure out ways of talking about something they didn't know how to talk about. Like a constant cross-pollination, ideally. And it doesn't always work, but it really can. That's what I enjoyed about in grad school and about the couple of conferences I managed to get to because we are people. I mean, writing in itself is very singular. It's, it's something you do on your own, in your head, in a notebook, on your computer, wherever, and you keep shifting it around. But in the end, you want to see what it does when you put it out in the world. And that's a low-pressure environment where you can put something out into the world and say, hey, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, I love that idea of cross-pollination. Thank you for sharing that with us and sharing all of your stories and ideas about submitting and your practice and for reading your poem for Prestia Anate. I appreciate you taking the time and joining us on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So that was Anate Sibone reading credits, Dead Girl Number 3, and discussing how she wrote the poem and the experiences that went into that work and a lot of her writing. Again, deeply personal experiences and reflections on the way that she interacts with the world, which I really valued and saw something in clearly, and as did my assistant editor, and we picked that piece because it felt very vital to the conversation. All of the wonderful resources she mentions are up in our show notes at rachelthompson.co slash podcast slash 81. Thanks for tuning in to a second episode on Room Magazine Ghosts, issue 46.3. The issue is on actual newsstands and online for order in print and digital at roommagazine.com. Coming up, you're going to hear from our commission writer, Aviak Johnston. That'll be our next episode. And our publisher, Naira Montero our book reviews editor, Micah Kiljoy, and more of the folks involved in The Labor of Love that is producing just one single issue of one single literary magazine. So is your mind blown yet thinking about all the wonderful people who put so much of themselves into just a single issue of a lit mag? So stay tuned for our next haunting episode in this spooky month when I'm talking all about our spooky issue, Ghosts. Do you crave support and structure so you can write your most luminous work? The Write, Publish, and Shine Intensive starts soon. Write, revise, and publish your luminous writing with lots of support from me. You can learn more and register at rachelthompson.co slash intensive. The Write, Publish, and Shine podcast is brought to you by me, Rachel Thompson. You can learn more about the work I do to help writers write, publish, and shine at rachelthompson.co. When you're there, why not sign up for my writerly love letters? I send them out just about every week, and they're filled with support for your writing practice. If this episode encouraged you to haunt some lit mags, I would love to hear all about it. You can always email me at hello at rachelthompson.co, and I would love if you could tell other luminous writers about this episode. You can do this a couple ways. One is by sending them to the podcast at rachelthompson.co slash podcast or telling them to search for Write, Publish, and Shine wherever they get their podcasts. And then another one would be to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts in particular. I have some lovely reviews up there, but they're from years ago, and I would love to get an updated one. And I'll just give you a shout out on an upcoming episode were you to do that review. So I would be very grateful, and I would give you a shout out. So thank you for listening. I encourage you to dig into the scary, deeply personal, perhaps haunting, spooky, 
writing you want to share to connect with readers. Annette Seboem spoke to me from Bochum, Germany, and let me know, of course, that Bochum is the 16th largest city in Germany and dates back to circa 900 AD. Rachel Gray spoke to me from Minneapolis, Minnesota, the traditional territory of the Dakota people. And I mention our locations and territories in order to reveal histories of the lands we occupy, but also more importantly, because I am a settler Canadian, I was raised in what is colonially known as Canada, and I support land back movements, though I currently am a guest in the South Sinai, Egypt, so far away from Canada at this time, on lands historically and presently occupied by the El Muzina Bedouin. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.